Hello, and welcome to Pod for the People. I'm your host, Dr. Tammy Govea. Each week, I invite everyday Americans, community activists, and status quo disruptors to share stories about the power of connection and finding the courage to heal our political divisions. In this inaugural episode of Pod for the People, I asked my dear friend Brian Muldoon to conduct an interview of me. I think he asked some pretty awesome questions to get me talking about my background, why I became a social worker and ran for political office, my experience running for lieutenant governor for the state of Massachusetts, and why I started this podcast. I thought it might be an interesting way to introduce myself to new listeners and share a little bit more about myself with people who already know who I am. I invite you to join our community on Substack and to subscribe to my newsletter, Doctor's Orders, a newsletter where I dissect what's wrong with American politics and share insights to mend our fraying social fabric and heal our political divisions. I will draw my experience as a public health social worker, advocate, single parent, policymaker, and catalyst for change. I look forward to sharing more news and updates as we build a strong community together. You can feel free to reach out to me at Tammy at TammyGovea.com. My name is unusually spelt. It's T-A-M-I at T-A-M-I-G-O-U-V-E-I-A.com. And thanks for listening. Well, I know your background pretty well, but do you want to go into your background a little bit? I grew up in Lowell, a very diverse working class city in the northeastern part of Massachusetts. And I loved growing up in the city of Lowell. It's really what shaped me as a person. It shaped my politics, shaped my worldview. I went to Catholic school for 12 years, and I've been starting to talk a little bit publicly about my experience of having grown up in the city, but also having gone to Catholic school for 12 years and what it taught me about uh, power and who has it, abuses of power and hypocrisy. My mom was telling me recently that in second grade, I, I asked if the nuns could come over to our house and bless us. And I was getting really into the things that I was learning in my Catholic school education about how, you know, we should be caring for our neighbors and for the most marginalizing, for the sick and caring for people who are discriminated against or ostracized, but that they should really be helped and supported and loved. And as I grew up in this particular faith community, sadly for me, I saw a lot of hypocrisy. I saw a lot of adults um, around me not caring for students whose families were really struggling with not having enough wages or struggling with substance use disorder and domestic violence. And instead, those adults, you know, just turned away and didn't offer a helping hand. And my mom noticed this and noticed how it impacted me and the friendships that I had because I, I was not going to church every single week, but out there helping those who needed help the most, inviting, you know, classmates who were being ridiculed in school because their uniform was dirty or they didn't have the latest and the coolest shoes or school bag. So that was in third, fourth, fifth grade. We were having these pretty active conversations about bullying and exclusion. And then I got to eighth grade and the schoolyard was between the school building and the rectory or the convent, actually. And the convent had, you know, 20 bedrooms for the nuns. There were only two living there at the time. And they, there was some active conversation about what to do with 
this convent. And one of the ideas that was proposed was to turn it into an AIDS hospice because this was during the AIDS epidemic. And I remember hearing comments around me among adults, well, we don't want those people near our kids. We don't want gay people or uh, people who are using substances or poor people or people of color. We don't want those people near our kids. And I remember just being really confused by that on one level, angry on another level, and and also disappointed and embarrassed. It flew in the face of the things that we had been taught, which is, again, to care for our neighbors, care for the sick, care for those who are, um, you know, excluded from society and ostracized. And that, that left an impact impact on me same time frame one of my closest dearest cousins got into a really bad car accident in Canada and I remember learning that had that accident happened here in the United States my aunt and my uncle would have probably had to have claimed medical bankruptcy because they would not have been able to afford her care but because the Canadian government has a universal healthcare system. My cousin's expenses were were taken care of, and she was in a coma for a year. You know, her severe brain injury that has left her quadriplegic. She lives in a group home now, and that left an impression on me that government can work together to help people, even people who are from a completely different country. And shame on us here in the United States for not figuring out how to get true universal healthcare coverage for every single person, not only in this state here in Massachusetts, but in our country writ large. And so those are the things, along with the fact that my grandfather was a lifelong member of the Carpenters Union, that really shaped my worldview and my values and my perspective. And because my grandfather was in the Carpenters Union, that put our family on pretty solid economic footing, but there still is a lot of hard work using your physical labor to build something or your physical labor to make something. I grew up with a real deep appreciation, not only for that hard work, but also what labor unions can do and what does it mean to for people to have uh, the dignity of receiving a fair wage, the dignity of receiving benefits and having that social safety net. So I grew up with the appreciation for those things and also the expectation that we should have those things to support every person in our community and in our state. While Lowell is a working class city, though, you, you know, saw your friends, family struggle. You saw people around you struggling who didn't have that same safety net. I saw a lot of people who due to racism or due to inaccessibility of, of services, didn't have those same opportunities. So for example, my first really early understanding of in the late 1980s, or I guess this was the early 1990s of the impact of medical racism on people I cared about. My boyfriend while growing up was uh, African-American. I watched his mom suffer for years in bed and she was in pain all the time. And it turns out that she had diabetes and she wasn't getting treated for it. And she, you know, went a very long time without even being diagnosed. I saw other families struggle with not having enough food to eat or not having heat or hot water in the wintertime. And that did instill a, a deep sense of empathy and a and an understanding of the fact that government's not always acting in the best interest of 
the most marginalized among us. When did you decide that social work and public health was what you wanted to focus on? All of that goes back to those early childhood experiences I had growing up in the city of Lowell and really seeing the the disparate opportunities, you know, that I had growing up in the city and that I've seen now living in the town of Acton and representing predominantly wealthy white suburban communities in the legislature and really seeing the different opportunities and the different resources that our communities have. Can you take a few minutes to talk about social work? Because I think people think social work, they think of a caseworker, right? But it's much way broader and more in-depth than that, right? The kind of social work that I practice is called macro social work practice. It's looking at the big picture, changes in policy and management and practices. It's shifting mindsets about not just making small tweaks to policies, but really trying to create those transformative uh, policies that create the conditions so that people can thrive. When I decided to go to social work school, I left the law firm. And I worked in a residential treatment facility, and I was working with the most traumatized adolescent girls in our state, girls who suffered severe uh, cases of abuse and neglect. And I thought there's got to be a better way to make sure that we are preventing young people from getting harmed and hurt in the first place. Some of the the challenges that families faced around neglect or that the girls experienced was because their families just simply didn't have enough financial resources. So making sure that people have a living wage means that we can prevent child abuse and neglect. For making sure that parents who are stressed out or depressed or have mental illness are provided with adequate treatment, it means that they're in a better position to be able to take care of their children. We can prevent child abuse and neglect and the harm and the hurt that comes along with that. So it's about making those investments in our people. And that's why I was drawn to macro social work practice. One follow-up on... So you, you're you're a child and you see this happen with your church, right? Particularly around the, the convent, the conversion to an AIDS hospice. You do not have the power at the time to do anything. But you did have the power to do something in a similar vein later on with the round low round table. Did those two things are they tied together? And can you talk a little bit about the low round table? So in 2007, I noticed that the city of Lowell did not have a substance abuse prevention coalition, but all of the surrounding suburbs did. So I thought, Lowell's really suffering from this opioid crisis. Let me connect with the city manager and the chief of police and see what we can do to pull together people in our community so that we can start to address the issue that we have here and get resources. And the very first conversation that we had, we pulled together 30 people for the Lowell Roundtable on Substance Abuse Prevention. And in that very first meeting, we talked at length about humanity and dignity and putting people first and destigmatizing treatment. We went ahead and we secured $10 million to, to address the issue. The other thing that happened out of this work is we were recognized nationally for putting people first. And we were nationally recognized for some of the innovative programming that we were leading on and passing policies to protect our young people. One thing I'd like your take on is kind of going back to the insidiousness of systemic racism and biases, the difference 
first off in how we now look at the opioid crisis, but then comparing that to how we looked at the, the crack epidemic. I worked in the area of substance abuse prevention for a good 15 or so years. And then I went ahead and was pursuing my doctorate in public health. I thought, I really don't want to do my dissertation on opioids or substance use disorder. I want to do it on something completely different. But I kept getting pulled back to this question around what is evidence-based treatment for substance use disorder? What would it mean to put people first when creating programs and creating treatment modalities around substance use disorder. And I, and I did a year long analysis of 250 or so years of drug policy making in the United States. And I realized how much our policy making was really driven by anti-Chinese racism and sexism. Our very first drug policies in the United States really are around opioids. It's around, it's around opium. And that got me thinking about the drug wars that really got even more solidified throughout the years, particularly in the 70s and the 80s. And again, how that interacted with the crack epidemic of the 80s, how we stigmatized substance use and contributed to the over-incarceration of Black and brown men in our state and in our country. And it was through that reflection and that analysis and just the how different it was our response to the crack epidemic compared to our response to the opioid epidemic, where so much of the work around the opioid epidemic has been particularly white parents of mostly young men living in the suburbs and how that demographic was much more able to start to change the dialogue around addiction, around substance use disorder, because of implicit biases and direct racism in policymakers and implicit biases and just sort of the system at large. And so I decided to do my dissertation on non-arrest policies for opioid use and addiction in Massachusetts because I see a window for us to address substance use disorder and racist drug policy making, we can leverage where we are and what we've learned because of the opioid crisis and because of who has been impacted by it. And that's grotesque, right? It shouldn't take white suburban kids ODing in order for us to put people's humanity first. So that also is and has to be a big part of the conversation. And that is embedded in my analysis, in my dissertation, in my research. We've only gone so far with uh, destigmatizing substance use disorder. We are now starting to see uh, Black and Latino men dying of overdoses at greater rates than had been previously. And we're starting to see the demographics of who's impacted by the opioid crisis start to shift. And so I think that that window for a different type of policymaking around substance use disorder, I fear that it might be closing. You, you formed the little round table, but then you hit some bumps along your professional career at that's around that same time. Uh, do you want to talk about that? About a year after forming the Lowell Roundtable, our country experienced a recession. And it wasn't long after that that I was laid off from my job as a public health social worker and subsisted on unemployment benefits for about nine months. And 
It was a real financial struggle to continue to put food on my table and try to keep the heat on, raising my kids as a, as a single mom during that time when I was unemployed. Eventually, I did get back on my feet. I have a strong network in the public health world and became the executive director of Tobacco Free Mass. But those nine months of unemployment were filled with uncertainty and fear. Year. And it wasn't just during that period of unemployment. There have definitely been other times when I have really financially struggled, um, couldn't pay um, one of my bills when I took the kids out for our annual end of the school year luncheon celebration and had to scramble to try to cover the bill. That was at Friendly's. It wasn't a, a big expensive bill. I think it was probably $32, but I just simply did not have enough in my bank account. I had miscalculated or a bill thing else came due and put me in a negative balance. And I had a negative bank balance on more occasions than I would like to admit. But it means that I understand financial struggle and sharing a bed with my 10 year old because his room didn't have heat and I didn't feel safe complaining to the landlord. I didn't want to get evicted. So you, you come out of this time frame and you're the executive director of Tobacco Free Mass. Is this where your interest in politics starts forming or did it already exist? After Trump was elected, I formed the Massachusetts chapter of the Women's March to get folks down to D.C., worked really hard to create as inclusive and engaging of a chapter as possible. So we raised money to provide bus scholarships to make sure that our folks who are non-binary, folks who are allies of uh, women's and trans rights were also uh, included. Folks who otherwise would not be able to participate in the march were able to participate. We were able to give 130 bus scholarships out to folks all across the state. So that was also another big moment in my political activism that really boosted my confidence in wanting to run for office. You know, I, I always knew I wanted to run for office, but living in Lowell, I did not see people who looked like me. It was all older white men, quite frankly, uh, people who had a lot of political connections or big political names or had a lot of money. Those are the people who were serving in our halls of government at the local, state, and federal level. That wasn't me. That wasn't my family. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll go do this social work thing. I'll you know, make a difference through my activism. It's why I did the Lowell Roundtable. It's why I started the Mass Chapter of the Women's March, the work that I did as the Executive Director of Tobacco-Free Mass. But then here I am after the Women's March, the state representative seat opened up and I jumped right into the race. I <laughs> did not hesitate. I was, I was ready. I was confident. I knew I had a story. I knew that I had skills that are desperately needed in government. And I had experiences that are really important for us to make sure that representatives have and, and bring to the lawmaking um, process. What is it like running for office? Most people will never do it. I love running for office. I love campaigns. It's the person-to-person -person connection that I appreciate the most in running for office. In my campaign for state representative, the first time we knocked on 21,000 doors, it's energizing to talk to people face-to-face, -to, -face, to talk to neighbors, 
people I've never met before, but just knocking on the door, introducing myself, sharing a little bit about myself and what my perspective is and hearing their questions and their concerns. And you know, I ran in 2018 the first time into Trump's presidency and people in this district in particular had a lot of concerns about the direction of our country and had a lot of concerns about having a president who spoke so disrespectfully of women and immigrants and people of color and low-income people and disabled people. I think people really appreciated having someone running for office, standing on their doorstep, talking about the issues that matter to us as a way to strengthen our democracy and our faith and our hope in each other. And I know that there are people who volunteered on my campaign, who are friends of mine, who had never volunteered on a campaign before, who had never door knocked before. And they were afraid to door knock at first because they were afraid that a neighbor of ours was going to slam the door in their face. And I can't even count on my single hand how many times that happened. The vast majority of people in this state are very open to having those conversations with candidates. And I think it's mutually energizing on both ends and on both sides of, of the conversation. And friends who were initially afraid to door knock walked away having a really positive experience. And that that's motivating, that's energizing, that's inspiring. And it just reminds, reminds me of what's so important about public service. And it's it's all about people and putting their stories front and center when thinking about policy solutions to some of the big problems that we're facing. What was it like to win? What went, do you remember what went through your head when you won? I, I ran against two, two men and we were working so hard every single day. The, the primary here in Massachusetts is in September, really hot and humid knocking on 100 doors a day, doing my best to connect with every voter I could leading up to the primary. We did not leave anything on the field. And we still, we felt positive going into the primary, but you just never know what, what's going to happen. So we were watching the results come in and I was winning one precinct, 600 to 200, and then another precinct, 500 to 150. I just was blowing it out of the water. And ultimately I won with over 65% of the vote against two other people. So we were incredibly proud of the work that we did in executing our strategy to, to reach people directly. The thing that was disheartening and sad was that one of my opponent's team well said to me directly, well, you only won because you're a woman. That was indeed not the, not the reason why we won. We, we won because we out-strategized and we outworked them. So that was a bummer that they tried to take that away, but we weren't having it. So, I mean, you got more than almost double what they got combined. I don't think I don't think that had anything to do with it. What was it like going into the state house for the first time? Were you were you blown away by the the grand hall or were you not? <laughs> I was blown away by having a seat in the chamber, having my name up on the vote board and taking that oath of office the first time. Is it's just I was just in awe of the experience. And the history 
that's in that room. And the fact remains that we have now only elected just over 200 women and over 20,000 men have been elected and served in the Massachusetts legislature. So there's something very special about being a woman representative in addition to just having the privilege and honor of serving. Going through this experience in COVID is what led to you running for lieutenant governor. And you got in the race, lieutenant governor, when it looked like a long shot the Democrats would win. Charlie Baker was still in the race. You were the first statewide. I think you and our new auditor announced roughly the same time. What was it like getting into a race where people were telling you, like, why are you doing this? Charlie Baker's still running. You're not going to win. It was frustrating. It was also freeing in other ways because I ran the kind of campaign that I wanted to run. We didn't sway from, you know, really focusing on telling my story as a single mom and the ways that I have struggled financially and the need for us to invest in the common good and invest in a strong social safety net. So I I was free to talk about those things and continue to talk about those things. And I'm proud of the campaign that we ran. It was frustrating that people seem to be afraid to have that, to take that leap of faith and to have some curiosity about why I was running to really hear me out and to hear the arguments for why electing different types of leaders, something that's needed and something that's important. The other thing I know that I experienced was sexism because people would talk about me having served a little over two years serving. The media would talk about me as if, how dare I in my time serving as state rep think that I could run for statewide office. When there are two men who had been in office even less time than I was and they were running for other seats and the media didn't talk about their races in the same way. They talked about their credentials as a physician, totally overlooking the fact that I am a doctor. The way the media framed me and my race was different right out of the gate, and their framing continued throughout the whole campaign. I'm guessing that manifested not just in the media, but in personal conversations where, similar to what we were saying before about like the biases that exist, right? You know, there were some folks who were huge supporters of mine as state representative. And when I called them to tell them I was running for lieutenant governor, I mean, one person said to me, well, why don't we, why don't we call a meeting and workshop this idea? I can't imagine that happening, A, to a male candidate, B, to treat me as if I'm not well-trained, smart highly professional person that I wouldn't know what was best for me and my family and where I wanted to put my efforts in serving the public and and serving the residents of the state of Massachusetts. I don't know what the word is. It it feels like an entitlement or that they owned a part of me. And for any resident, any voter to think that about any elected official is really dangerous thinking because these positions, especially state representative, is supposed to be short term. But we have become so used to these turning into 10, 20, 30, 40 year jobs for some people, I think gives people, gives voters and residents the perception that if you don't serve 
as long of a period of time and then you decide to move on that you're selfish or overly ambitious or so again i go back to that not having curiosity about what i would actually be able to contribute at a much higher level a more macro level if i were to get elected lieutenant governor and what i would be able to contribute and proud that I push myself to run for statewide office. I mean, it's a little audacious, like let's be honest, <laughs> to uh, run for statewide office, but um, I haven't even fully processed all of what it really means to me and the new relationships that I built. So unfortunately you didn't win, but about 150,000 people voted for you. Most people can't visualize how many people that actually is. That's a third the size of Boston. That's pretty cool. It's it's very cool. It's as we say, it's wicked cool. <laughs> it's wicked cool. It's wicked. No, it is really cool. Um, and I am proud of that. And one of the things, you know, especially over the last couple of weeks of the campaign, when it becomes a real frenzy, because that's when the electorate starts paying attention. It was really hard to get people's attention beforehand. And there's a whole variety of reasons for that. You know, the the national politics, people were really paying attention to the national races. We had so many statewide races here in Massachusetts. And then there was redistricting that also meant that there were a lot of uh, state level, state rep and state Senate races that were also going on. So it was a very, very busy, exhausting election cycle. And let's not forget, there were also the Supreme Court decisions that I think really, really impacted people here in the state. You know, in the month of June, after Dobbs came out and some of the other Supreme Court decisions came out, there was just this dark cloud over so many conversations that I had, you know, just a lot of sadness and fear and anger and just a lot of really intense feelings that contributed to some people checking out for a while or checking out completely. So all of that had an impact. But those last couple of weeks leading up to the primary in September, what we were hearing is that when people found out about what my commitment to putting people's health and dignity first, when people found out about my personal experiences, having struggled financially, people could really see their story and my story as interconnected. Once people, you know, found out they, they were pretty jazzed about us and pretty jazzed about our campaign and pretty jazzed about me as potentially serving as the next lieutenant governor. But we just couldn't get to, we couldn't, it was difficult to reach the sheer number of people that we needed to reach in the short amount of time that we had once people started to pay attention. And, you know, you're coming right off of the summer, but uh, lots to be proud of. And those almost 150,000 votes, I'll take them. <laughs> so that brings us to now. And what you are doing next. So do you want to talk a little bit about this podcast and what your vision is for it? This podcast is Pod for the People. Pod stands for Power of Democracy. And really, the inspiration comes from the things that I learned during the campaign and in reflecting after the campaign and just realizing that our social fabric has been fraying. And it's been fraying for a good couple decades. And what it comes down to for me is we start to have meaningful conversations about what would it really look like if we all 
saw our own successes and the successes of our children interconnected the successes of neighbors and their children's successes. If we really embraced the common good and made an investment in the common good, how things would look so incredibly different. And I suspect that if we got back to investing in each other and investing in the common good, we would see a public transportation system that is fully functional, that we would have a housing system that was truly affordable and that was providing housing that is safe and healthy and dignified. You know, when I was campaigning, I went to, I was door knocking and I, I went to houses where the steps were broken, there was no functioning doorbell, there was no way to figure out in an apartment, um, like a multifamily home, which apartment was one and which one was six, because there were no numbers on the doors. I don't, I just don't even know how public safety responds in some of our urban areas where there aren't functioning doorbells or aren't, you know, addresses on the door to know which, which door to go to. How do we have those conversations about the transformative policies that we need to have? And so the idea of this podcast is how do we popularize investments in transportation, housing, recreation, education, jobs that provide a living wage and sound benefits? How do we talk about these ideas in a way that is interesting and accessible? And I have this extensive national network of people who are status quo disruptors in their own way, who are local leaders in another way, who have inspiring stories to share and can help with this call to action that I think we need around the common good and putting people's humanity and dignity uh, front and center? And how do we really catalyze the vital conditions that can support everyone's opportunity to thrive? Thank you for listening to Pod for the People, where we share everyday stories about health, dignity, and opportunity for our collective well-being. To learn more about how you can be part of a thriving community, building a future of opportunity for everyone, please follow me and check me out at TammyGovea.com. Also subscribe to this podcast, as well as Doctor's Orders, my latest newsletter at tamigovea.substack.com. Have a great day until next time.